Welcome to National Transport Podcast, episode 22. My name is Alex, and in this week's episode we'll have Nottingham City Council securing £16.7 million to improve transport security, and the Driver and Vehicle Standards Agency announcing new measures to help slow down the spread of COVID-19. And we'll have a special guest on our show, Paul Comfort, to talk about his new book, The Future of Transportation, and we'll be discussing how coronavirus has affected the transport industry in general. And as always, you can like us on Facebook, National Transport Podcast, or you can email us at nationaltransportpodcast at gmail.com. Nottingham City Council secures £16.7 million to improve transport connectivity. Nottingham City Transport has been successful in bidding for the grant money for the Department of Transport, which will now be invested in joint projects with Derby to improve connectivity and further encourage the use of public transport. The cash has come from the DFT's Future Mobility Strategy, which set aside £70 million for 18 transforming city fund regions, including Nottingham and Derby, to bid for. It will see the creation of the four future transport zones around the county. The area's long-standing reputation for delivery and innovative integrated transportation schemes was seen as a key success of the Nottingham and Derby bid, which is focused on three key areas creating three types of electric mobility hubs, neighbourhood, campuses and depots. Each will aim to encourage the take-up of alternative travel methods and offer electric car club hire, electric bike sharing, vehicle charging points, digital information screens and real-time public information. A data platform to pool various transport data sources owned and collected by the council into a single place to provide a complete picture across the network to improve the efficiency of the traffic control centre and keep commuters informed of the latest information. There will also be the opportunity to trial new modes of transport such as autonomous vehicles and investigate how they could safely and sustainably be incorporated into Nottingham's established networks. Councillor Adele Williams, portfolio holder for Transport at Nottingham City Council said, This is an exciting news and yet another example of how good we are at bidding for and securing these types of grants to improve the local transport options. It is a significant amount of money for Nottingham and Derby, and we have innovative plans for both cities here in Nottingham. We are going to improve traffic information and help commuters and motorists navigate their way around, whilst at the same time helping our traffic control officers to manage traffic better. These plans underline how forward-thinking Nottingham is and will help us achieve our ambitious target of becoming carbon neutral by 2028, ahead of other cities in the country. DVSA suspends MOT testing and cancels driving tests. The Driver and Vehicle Standard Agency last week announced new measures to help slow down the spread of COVID-19. The Driver's Vehicle Standards Agency, DVSA, has suspended MOTs, annual tests, for all heavy goods vehicles and public service vehicles for up to three months from the 21st of March 2020, due to the spread of COVID-19. All HGVs and PSVs with an MOT will be issued issued a three-month certificate of temporary exemption until further notice. Vehicles must be maintained, kept roadworthy and operate within the terms of operators' licensing conditions. Additionally, the DVSA is suspending driving tests in England, Scotland and Wales for up to three months from the 21st of March. The decision has been made to help prevent the spread of coronavirus as tests lead to extend the contract between candidates and examiners in vehicles. 
although the DVSA has put in place plans to provide tests for critical workers. The Transport Secretary Grant Shapps said we are having to take big decisions to protect the public in our national battle against COVID-19. Regrettably, we have to suspend driving tests for up to three months to help tackle the spread of the virus. It is vital to those who need a test to get one so the DVSA can is offering tests for those who have a critical need, such as the NHS and drivers delivering goods across the UK. Those who have tests cancelled will have priority when testing resumes. DVSA will contact anyone with a test booked during this time to let them know that their test has been cancelled and that they will automatically rebook it for them. The decision will be kept under review. And now we hand over to our special guest, Paul Comfort. All right, uh, Alex, great to be on your show, the National Transport Podcast. I'm Paul Comfort, uh, author of the book, The Future of Public Transportation, and uh, one of North America's big transit evangelists, as I like to call myself. Thanks for having me on today. You're welcome. Thank you. Welcome to the show. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and I appreciate you reaching out to talk about the topic, as you and I were just talking about off air. Um I did release this new book, my second book, The Future of Public Transportation, March 1st, just ahead of this COVID-19 thing before it really started going uh, wild here in, in North America and there in the United Kingdom as well. And um, it was able to, thankfully, it went to number one on Amazon uh, for transportation books. And the book includes 40 uh, different contributors from around the world, including Gordon McLennan there in the United Kingdom from uh, Strathclyde Partnership for Transportation in Glasgow, Scotland. Became a good friend of mine this year when I visited there. And um, talking about what the future of public transportation holds uh, in the next uh, three to five years, this this decade of the 2020s. So, um, but of course now we've got um, something even bigger happening that's on our plate. The immediate future of public transportation uh, which is why well, I started up a daily podcast called Comfort's Corner, available on iTunes and Anchor FM, Spotify, Google uh, Podcasts, etc. And uh, it's covering daily headlines from around North America and the world on how public transportation is being impacted by this coronavirus pandemic. How are things going there in the United Kingdom when it comes to public transit? At the moment, most operators are running on a Saturday timetable. I think London's shut down 40 of its tube stations and reduced its networks drastically as it's preparing for lockdown. The rest of the country's kind of taking it as is. All the schools have been shut. Pubs and clubs and bars have all been shut. Social gatherings are being told not to happen. It's it's a bit pandemic at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds very similar to what's happening here in the United States and in Canada. I live near Washington, D.C. in the state of Maryland, and uh, we're, we're not quite on a complete lockdown now. Uh, some states here in the U.S. have declared that people aren't allowed to go out unless they're going to get groceries or uh, to medical care, that kind of a thing. Uh, but that's kind of what's happening here anyway. Most of the businesses that are what's called non-essential uh, have shut down. And so that's had a big impact on public transportation, obviously. The ridership in public transportation in North America has dropped dramatically. Like, I'm talking over 60% in most cities. Do you Have you heard any numbers there in the UK? Uh, I haven't got any numbers on hand at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, I was just talking yesterday uh, to the CEO of the Delaware Transit, um, where Wilmington and Dover, Delaware are. They run the whole state. And he said their ridership is about down 60%. Uh, 
some of the commuter train services. I've been talking to folks that work in commuter services, bringing people into cities like New York and Washington, D.C. Uh, and Philly. Their ridership is down even more than that, 70, 80, even 90 percent uh, on some commuter trains, just because, you know, the businesses downtown are not open. So that's having a real impact. That's I imagine. Yeah. The, um, the other big thing that that's doing as a result of that is uh, fare recovery is down. And so I know in the U.K., outside of London, transport is run by these private bus companies that like First Group and things like that and Tower Transit, et cetera, who run completely on fares. So I can imagine they're taking a real wallop. Oh, it's, yeah, there's a talk of having a billion-pound bailout for transportation and coach companies in the U.K. because of how much they've been affected by the coronavirus. Yeah. Yeah, that's what's happening here, too. We have a national association in America called the American Public Transportation Association, APTA, and they are asking Congress to consider a $16 billion bailout for public transportation in the U.S. just because, you know, with the fare box recovery down and the costs, uh, so far transit agencies that I'm aware of have not laid anybody off. So they're still having to pay the same costs. Um, they're running less service. Uh, the fare box recovery is less, but they're having to really do extraordinary cleaning measures. And so they've got crews out now cleaning buses, you know, in between almost every run. So they'll get to the end of the line and then they'll be met with a mobile cleaning crew who'll go in and take five or ten minutes and wipe down all the high-touch surfaces on the bus, etc., all the extra chemicals that are being used, etc. And so um, it's, it's, uh, the costs are going up, not really down, and yet the the uh, the fares are going down, and so that is a you know here in the U.S. it's not quite run the way it is there in the U.K. outside of London, it's it's pretty much completely subsidized other than the fare box and ad revenues, and so most people are bringing in 25 to 35 percent of their operating costs from the fare box, and now what's happening is that not only is fare is fare revenues down because ridership is down, but most transit systems now have gone to adjusted operating procedures so they're doing what's called rear door entry to the bus only and they're shutting the front door so that there won't be an interaction between the passengers and the drivers at least not as much to reduce the potential to transmit you know the covid virus and so as a result of that the fare box is sitting up front and so people are coming in the back and for the first week they were doing visual validation of cards and you know there is some um some readers in the back of the bus that people can tap and go but not all buses have that in the u.s uh, I know in London they've done away with cash, but they're not quite there in the U.S. and Canada yet. And so as a result of that, a lot of transit systems are announcing, you know, free fares to ride the bus just because there's no way for them to actually collect the fare. So that's another big impact that's having on the transit systems, you can imagine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I think um, this week I've got uh, on, on my show, Comfort's Corner, uh, on Monday, I'll have the CEO of the Connecticut Transit System, and on Tuesday, I'll have the CEO of a transit system near Washington, D.C., and on Wednesday, one in Canada, and basically, we're, we're asking them in kind of what we call newsmaker interviews to tell us what's happening on the ground with their system. So there's a lot of changes. The Canadian Urban Transit Association, my, uh, my buddy Marco D'Angelo is the CEO there. They're also asking the Canadian government for a big bailout. And I saw that your parliament is considering kind of like a general kind of stimulus like they are here in the U.S. and Canada and other countries. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they are considering yep. <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's amazing to me how quickly 
things have changed for something that is like an unseen enemy, uh, this virus, how that really within two weeks we've had a whole upending of our economy and way of life. Yep. And I'm sure it's, it feels that way in the UK as well. Oh, yeah, panic spreads and it's, it's spreading fast. Yeah, one of the kind of interesting side notes of this whole thing here in the U.S. has been people are buying all the toilet paper up, which is the weirdest thing to buy to me. I mean, I, I mean, but, you know, people are there's stories about it. I was in stores yesterday and uh, there's none. There's is, are, is there a panic run on toilet paper there in the United Kingdom as well? It is. I work in a tiny little petrol station or what you'd call a gas station and we have no meat, no bre- milk, no bread, no eggs, no bread, nothing. I yeah, mean, I, was, I was only putting out six loaves of bread this morning, and people were fighting over it before I even got it on the shelf. Wow, that is something, man. I just, now I can see buying food, but it just—it just strikes me as a fun and and cleaning supplies. You know, the Clorox and all that has been out here in the U.S. And you know, I've got a friend who works pretty high up in one of the big companies, uh, Procter and Gamble, that makes toilet paper, and he said they've got six factories running three shifts a day. You know, trying to pump that stuff out. Because there is an insatiable demand for it. Stores have even gone now to kind of saying you can only get one or two uh, packages of this stuff because, you know, people were hoarding it. Yeah, apparently the sale of hand sanitizer has gone up by 700% since this old thing broke out. Isn't that amazing? It's something else. So you wonder if uh, the impact that this will have, hopefully, you know, like China supposedly is reporting, um, I'm, I'm never too sure how much to believe from their state-run media, but, you know, it sounds, it seems like the pandemic has passed uh, and it peaked and passed over a few months. And so hopefully we'll experience the same thing here in the Western world with the pandemic peaking maybe in the next month or two and then coming down. Don't know yet. Nobody's given that official word. But if we do get past it, uh, let's say, you know, by the end of summer, um, what do you think will be the, will there be any long-lasting impacts on public transportation there in the United Kingdom? I think it will probably affect smaller, smaller independent companies, ones that don't have a big company to fall back on and the budget to fall back on. Yes, yeah, I think that's going to happen here as well. Um, we have we have major contract uh, transportation providers, you know, like you do there. We have First Group here; it's called First Transit, Transdev, um, and uh, MV Transportation is a uniquely North American company. But we also have Keolis and National Express. Now, here in the U.S., though, they operate with subsidies from the government. They don't come in and set up their own routes like they do outside of London there. But um, all, all of them, obviously, are experiencing – most of them are being paid by the revenue hour. And with revenue hour service going down, uh, paratransit service in some places, uh, service to the elderly and disabled, is down 50 percent or more. And that's what is mostly outsourced here in the U.S. and in the United Kingdom. Uh, it is having a real impact. And then, of course, you've got the big companies like Bombardier and others operating commuter rail service. That that service is down dramatically, too. Like like you said, a lot of systems are going to Saturday-only schedules now where they're having greatly reduced service. So all of that is going to have a long-term financial impact. But I also wonder about the operational impacts. Here in the U.S., we had not yet gone to fare-free or cash-free systems. And um, they're all learning on the fly kind of how to make that happen you all have had that for quite some time there in london right no yeah we've i think london went cashless was it about four years ago maybe yes yeah i was talking to simon uh reed who works for tfl he was one of the guests on my transit unplugged podcast which i do for trapeze um and uh he was telling me that they had done that when they when they had the oyster card come out it was so successful 
and then Cubic helped them go to the tap and go system that they just when they went fare free, less than five percent of the people were using. I mean, when they went cash free, less than five percent of the people were using cash anyway at the point. So it wasn't a big hubbub, you know. I think it's safer for drivers as well because there's less risk of them being mugged for their money. What little they have that, of it. Yeah, that's true. Yep. Um, of course, you know the fare boxes here, at least in the U.S., are very you know secure. I don't know. I don't know how they could get the money out of it anyway. But but I know that some drivers would agree with that. That even the cash handling uh, and the germs and and the potential crime, it'd be great to go cash free. There's been a law. There is a law here in the U.S. Title Six, which is concerning those who are lower income and potentially unbanked, and they want to make sure that they're protected and they still have the ability to to ride transit. But places like London. You know, you've been able to make sure that they can do that simply by having cards that store value, right? So you mm. don't necessarily have to have a bank. You could just put cash on a card, right? Yeah, you just top it up as and when you need it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you don't really need a bank. You can just top up the card or your account on your phone, and you don't necessarily need a – you don't always need a bank to do all of that. No, so kind use... of – go ahead. What you say? And so you just use cash at the little top-up machines. Yeah. At the little machines, right, you can top it up. So I have a feeling that that could be one of the long-term impacts here in the U.S., is that we could move much more quickly to cash-free and uh, go into these kind of account-based systems or tap-and-go systems. Some systems, uh, Robbie Mackinnon, who is CEO of the Kansas City Area Transit Authority, he's been pushing to go fare-free for about a year now anyway, and they've gotten kind of the nod, the okay from their mayor and their city council to move in that direction. And so this, they just announced fare-free service uh, this week, and a number of other systems are doing the same thing just for the purposes of this uh, during the time of the pandemic when ridership is down. But it could be some of the long-lasting impacts. Can you think of any others you think that would impact our systems? Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking cleanliness. You know, yeah. I think that I think that when we're done this, all of our systems are going to be very clean inside the buses, you know, and they may even uh, continue kind of this um, enhanced cleaning procedures. You know what I mean? I think also you've got to reassure the public it's safe to be out and in social in large groups again. That's probably. A oh, that's right. Yes, that's true. Right. So people. People are sometimes afraid to get into, uh, you know, airplanes or other modes of mass transportation because of that. And so you're right. They're going to need kind of the all clear signal before they're comfortable doing so. Um, I wonder if we want to switch over now and just talk for a few minutes about the, uh, you know, move off the pandemic and move into kind of the more general future of public transportation that my book, uh, which is available, by the way, you know, there in the United Kingdom on Amazon or Barnes and Noble online. Uh, you can get it as an ebook download, uh, meaning you know, if, like for a Kindle reader or some electronic reader, or as a paperback book. Um, and uh, it's available right now if you go online to get it. But I wanted to talk about some of that to you, if that's okay. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So um, one of the things that's, that I, I found very interesting in the book is, uh, as I talked to a lot of the, kind of the way I came to the concept of writing the book was that uh, in doing this podcast that you've mentioned, you've listened to a couple episodes of Transit Unplugged. Uh, but it, basically what it is, it's a, every two weeks, it's a new podcast, and it's an interview with a CEO of a transit system or a CEO of a transit company. And so in the last year or so, you know, I've been all over Europe. I've been, uh, did a series in Australia, did a series in the United Kingdom, did a series in Canada. And then, of course, we still have plenty of people here uh, in the United States that are on there. 
And as I was talking to all these CEOs, people like Gordon McLennan, who is CEO there of Strathclyde Partnership for Transportation in the United Kingdom up in Glasgow, Scotland, I would ask them about their lives and careers, and then we would talk about their current system, their current projects, what they're working on. And then we would talk about what's the future hold? What do you got in your sights coming up, you know, right around the bend? And so I felt like I had my finger on the pulse of where all these individual transit systems were going, and they kind of make up the overall public transport ecosphere. And uh, so I felt like, you know, things are changing so quickly in the world of public transport when it comes to technology, you know, whether it's, you know, the tap-and-go systems of, of today to what's happening now, which is, you know, wearables where people are able to tap and go on a vehicle wearing a bracelet or a necklace that has stored value on it, um, just like a card, but it's just in a chip in their in their jewelry, to the next things which are happening, which are autonomous vehicles, uh, these smaller vehicles or uh, smaller shuttle buses that are being manufactured by a number of companies now, which can be used on specialty routes or for last-mile solutions or on campuses without a driver. And so that's a big thing that's happening across the industry. Or mobility as a service, which is where um, transit systems are adjusting their role to not just be the provider of public transit in the city, but the aggregator of all things mobility, which would include things like Uber and Lyft and taxis and scooters and bikes, e-bikes, and, and maybe even um, other type of micro-transit services that are offered in the city all under one app. Of course, there in London, when I talked to Simon Reed, he felt like people have app fatigue, and he suggested that instead of uh, a transit agency asking people to download a separate app for this, that what may be a, another solution would be that when people are using their apps for other services, that transit pops up as an option at the bottom of it. So, for instance, if you were wanting to um, go to the movies and you went on your favorite movie app and uh, or theater app and bought tickets uh, for the 7 o'clock show, then after you purchase the tickets, up in the bottom of your screen would pop, what are the public transport options to get you there? It knows where you're at based on your AVL on your phone, and it knows where the vehicles are and what times they are, and so it would suggest to you, oh, you can take the 6.30 train and get to the and get to the movies with 10 minutes to spare. Just push this button right here, and, and um, you know you will uh, you can purchase your ride that way, et cetera. So other options that he suggests uh, as kind of a new and fresh way to look at mobility as a service Whereas other folks are going more the Helsinki, Finland, WIM app kind of way where it's all pulled together on one app. And private companies are uh, putting those apps out, white label apps for transit agencies to use. Some transit agencies like here in the U.S., Dallas has done, are developing themselves. They're a leader in that. Then other systems like Denver, RTD, have even gone to allowing Uber to put the public transit options on their app. And so there's lots of different options, but the point is people are managing their lives today through their phones. Uh, and, um, and so this gives you on your phone the option to kind of plan, pay for, schedule your trip, and maybe even subscribe in the future. I know in some cities, like Helsinki, they've gone to that, where you can have a gold, a silver, or platinum sponsorship or um, membership for the month, and it gives you, you know, free transit for the month. It gives you X amount of trips on uh, a zip car, rental car, maybe X amount of trips on e-bike and scooter, et cetera. And so basically for, let's say, 400 pounds a month, you could ride um, anywhere you need to get around in London is, is the concept once that's fully implemented. So that's been another big trend that we've seen happening. Here in the U.S. and there in the U.K. as well, there's another big trend that's happening because overall ridership before this COVID-19 scare came, 
uh, and this pandemic was here, there was still a decline in ridership over the um, the last five years or so. And so a lot of systems um, felt like they needed to do something uh, to boost ridership again because ridership has been taken away by other people working at home and through the uh, through TNCs that have come into cities. I know Uber's been in and then out and then in again or whatever in London. But um, but they have taken a lot of ridership choice riders away, and so ridership generally has been declining. So systems have rebooted their bus networks. And I, I know when I was there in the U.K., I was talking to Giles Fernley, a first group, and he said that cities like Bristol had done that as well and seen a dramatic increase in ridership. And across the U.S. here, people have done that. You see, the routes that most public transit systems run have never been substantially overhauled. A lot of them are still the same basic routes that were in place 50 years ago. I know when I was uh, CEO, the chief executive officer of the MTA in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, our routes had, had basically been significantly the same for 50 years since there was trolleys uh, in town. And two-thirds of our bus routes went to the central business district of Baltimore, which was the most congested. And there was 145,000 jobs in the central business district, but there was another you know, three or 400,000 jobs outside of the central business district. And yet we had never really comprehensively addressed that. We tweaked the routes three times a year, like most systems do, but we'd never really taken an overall look and have an overhaul. And so the city of Houston was the first major city in the U.S. to do it, and Seattle followed. Both of them saw a spike in ridership in 2017, and then seven more major cities did it in 2018. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah 2018, uh, and saw an increase in ridership including cities like Austin and Las Vegas, uh, and then other cities around North America have done it, including Vancouver, which leads the increase in ridership from all cities in North America. And so they basically all rebooted their bus network, taking people to where they want to go today, changing the frequency of routes, adding high-frequency service to their main line halls so the buses would come every 10 to 15 minutes, meaning people don't really need a bus schedule anymore. You can just stand there like you would for the tube coming and you know it'll come on a regular basis and you don't have to worry about that. That frequency is something that's really key. And the third thing they've done is they've um, decreased the, the what I call the friction. And so they've added in bus only lanes. They've added in transit signal priority to allow buses to have priority at uh, traffic signals. And they've um, made fairing a lot simpler like you and I have already talked about where it's you don't have to pay cash or buy some kind of pass at the fare box. But you're... Um, you're tap and go or you're using e-fares or a card of some type so it's a lot quicker at the fare box people aren't standing there for 20 seconds while they have some kind of interaction and transaction at the fare box all of these have led to uh, what i call the silver bullet and i talk about it even in more detail in the book in one of the chapters the silver bullet to increase ridership are those three things meaning that uh, changing the bus networks to take people where they want to go today, using heat maps and evaluating where people really need to go, where the jobs are today, and where, where the uh, trip generators are, and then adding uh, more frequency to your heaviest hauling routes, and then reducing the friction. Those are the three things that make up the silver bullet to increase ridership. And all the major systems across North America and the United Kingdom that I've, that I've looked at have, uh, have all done some facet of that. And so that's the key. And so transit systems across the so uh, North America and Europe were looking at doing all that, and we're doing all that up until a couple weeks ago when all this stuff changed. But there's still that's still moving in the background. So that is kind of the more immediate near future of public transportation. And then finally, the big the big trend 
that we talk about in the book, of course, is electrification and zero emission buses. We've got a number of chapters on that. Uh, the big, the big ones are electric buses, and then um, compressed natural gas (CNG), and then even hydrogen. My friend Lauren Skyver, who is CEO of Sunline Transit in Coachella Valley, California, is one of the leaders in the U.S. and has even built a national center of excellence to train mechanics and all how to work on uh, hydrogen buses. And she's built her own hydrogen plant. I've toured it um, there in Thousand, uh, I think it's um, yeah Thousand Oaks, California. I think it's where it's at her operation. But just phenomenal. So this this whole push toward cleaning the environment and making buses quieter and easier to use by moving them to zero emissions is another big trend that we see coming into the 2020s. Oh yes, it's the same here, carbon neutral and stuff. I was talking in November to the energy engineering director of Nottingham City Transport, who owned the largest fleet of double-decker gas buses in the I think the Europe. Wow. About how they done that over the last few years and how it's all been and how it works. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You know the. Um, I guess the final thing I wanted to mention to you was just that I think even as we head into all this new technology. Uh, and, and as we come out of the COVID pandemic, hopefully uh, sooner rather than later, the, the changes that will happen in public transportation really don't change the fundamentals. The fundamentals are that we are in the public transport business. It's really a public utility. It's not any different than, uh, you know, when you think about it, than electric or, or you know, uh, gas for people's homes or telephones. It's an essential service that really makes the economy run. And I think even in this COVID-19 scare that's happening uh, right now, you can see that is that public transport has been deemed, uh, you know, a public necessity, a public use. And so it's considered it's not just like, uh, you know, a non-essential service, like getting your hair cut at a barber. That's important, but it's not essential. If you have to, you can cut your own hair, <laughs> although we don't know what that will look like. Uh, but but when it comes to getting around mobility, if you don't have some type of mass transportation in these cities, the whole city grinds to a halt. Oh, yeah. Uh, when you've got half your workers, you know, uh, and a lot of the shoppers and other folks using it, and you don't have it running effectively, you can't run a modern economy. And so I think that's becoming very clear now that even uh, even this age, like I said, of COVID-19 uh, has, has reiterated to people the importance of public transport. And that maybe, just maybe, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't consider it like so we, I think sometimes basically I mean I'm just going to be frank with you in a lot of places people think well public transportation that's for poor people uh, <laughs> and, and, and so people that are more well to do can have their own car or have car service and don't need that and so you know yeah it's, it's a necessity for some people but it's not really important but I think we're seeing now that no it really is important that the doctors and the nurses and the policemen and the firemen and all these other folks that are getting to the essential services right now in COVID-19, they're taking public transit because that's their regular way to get around. Uh, I know in London, it's not necessarily considered that way. London and some other major cities like New York City, you know, commuters use it all the time. But in a lot of places in America, it's more considered, you know, it's it's for the, um, the less fortunate or the people who are lower income. And uh, it's just not, uh, it's just not deemed uh, high enough on the uh, spectrum of values of those who vote and have a lot of money and make a lot of decisions in society. Uh, and now I think that hopefully through this pandemic, they can see that, no, actually, it is critical. It's core and essential to the running kind of, you know, it, not only the wheels in the bus going round and round, as I say in the old book, but the wheels on our economy 
are moving on mass transit. Would you agree? Oh, I'd agree, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm actually working on uh, a children's version of this book. I've been talking to some artists around the world to maybe help me turn this into a picture book because oh. I want our young people, you know, ages kind of 5 to 13, to be able to understand that message that I just told you. That, you know, here, let's say, use the United States as an example. When the United States first got started back in the 16 and 1700s, when we were still part of England and then kind of broke away, uh, you know, mass transit was even key back then, right? The wagon trains that took people out west and the trains, the railroads, the, the coal-powered railroads that took people out west, those were the mass transportation of the day, and that's how we populated the western side of our country, in addition to mass transportation on boats, uh, getting people across, you know, down the Mississippi River. And then in the early 1900s, in the late 1800s, when we met, when we went into these kind of uh, horse-drawn carriages that took people through the city, they were almost like buses, three buses without an engine, but with a horse. And then they went to the city streetcars, uh, the electric streetcars in the early 1900s that were carrying people in places like London and here in New York and Philadelphia. And then the B&O Railroad taking people from Baltimore, my, my town, across uh, across the country and how public transport really has been an engine that has driven the expansion of the Western world and of our societies. And now in cities, you know, it is the buses, it's the light rail systems, it's the subway systems. We want to have pictures of all those so the kids can kind of see and hear the story about how this is helping really uh, our society continue to evolve. And then what's coming in the future? Not only the things that I've talked about, you know, electric autonomous vehicles and uh, mobility as a service and things like that, but even the air travel that's coming. Here in the U.S., uh, Uber has already started running what they call Uber Air, which are these Uvitals, these unmanned vehicles, which you can – it's it's not a helicopter, but it's kind of like one. And you can, you can ride from building to building in a city. They've already started it in California. I was actually moderating a panel in Las Vegas a couple months ago that had the, one of the head guys there – on it and also another guy was on the panel that is doing drones unmanned drones and they're saying that you know within a couple years we can expect to see you know like i'm looking out into my front yard i could have if there's a spot big enough i could call a drone on my phone to come to my house land in my yard i could go out and get in it it would pick me up in the air and fly me to where i needed to go and drop me off at the top of a building in downtown washington dc uh, and beating all the traffic and all. I mean, those things are not science fiction anymore. They're more science than they are fiction. And so those are the kind of things we want to talk about. Uh, we do talk about them in the book, The Future of Public Transportation, but I even want to show them to kids, kind of excite their imagination, you know? Mm. So do you think drones are the next level of public, the next level of bus, that one day everyone will just take drones everywhere? Uh, I don't know that everyone will do it, but I think it is, it is a... Uh, it's another means of mobility, public mobility, that is coming right around the corner. Uh, we're going to have it. I mean, and the other big thing we haven't talked about is Hyperloop. Um, and that's probably, you know, uh, something we should chat about just for a second. Hyperloop, as I'm sure your listeners know, is basically a tube where you suck all the air out of it so it's almost like you're in outer space. That's a simple way to describe it. So you give it a little bit of – it's a train riding on tra – electric, electric train riding on tracks that you give a little – uh, jolt on the tracks to, and that train, in theory, can run 600 miles per hour, just subsonic speed. Now, there are two major companies that are working on it. Uh, one of them is Elon Musk's Hyperloop, and the other is Sir Richard Branson's Virgin Hyperloop. It used to be called Hyperloop One, and he's an investor in it now. And so 
those two companies are the big ones, and I know there's some other ones working on it as well, and that are competing for contracts all over the world in places like Dubai where they have plenty of mo extra money where they can you know, experiment on things like this. And right here in the U.S., we've got a test track for Virgin Hyperloop in Las Vegas uh, where they're running trains now, you know, getting close to 300 miles per hour. So the high-speed uh, nature of it uh, could revolutionize intercity transportation between cities so that you could cut the time down dramatically. People would get in and get in a pod, and it would, uh, you know, it would be just like an airplane. You don't feel the pressure. It's pressurized, so even though you're going 600 miles per hour in an airplane, you don't realize it, and that would be the way it would be in these little pods, and they would be in tubes on the ground or underground. That is real, and the people that are in charge of it, I was just with the CEO of Virgin Hyperloop at an APTA business members meeting a couple months ago, and he said that we are going to have these running by the end of this decade. It's going to be real. It's going to be happening. I mean, it is real. It's happening now, but we haven't hit those speeds yet. But that's another really cool next step for mass transportation. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and it's, and it's being driven by private initiatives. In other words, these are not public transit agencies that are doing this. Public transit agencies are still looking at, for instance, um, you know, uh, maglev trains like they have in China and Japan and, and across Europe. We don't really have any of those working here in the U.S. yet. It's a shame. Uh, I know that when I was CEO of MTA in Baltimore, when I got there, we were studying. The, we'd gotten a $27 million uh, federal grant to study the alignment of running one between Baltimore and Washington, D.C., and the promise was a 30-minute ride. Now, I already ran commuter bus or a commuter train service between the cities called MARC, Maryland Area Regional Commuter Train Service. And we actually had the highest speed commuter trains in America we were running. We were hitting 132 miles per hour, I think, at some points. Um, and uh, But it, it still would take, you know, a lot longer than 30 minutes to get between Baltimore and Washington, D.C., maybe double or triple that time. And, uh, and so the promise of this high-speed travel, let's say, between Washington, D.C. and New York, on maglev but you know what they're still studying it alex they, they're still they haven't figured out the alignment yet there's been community blowback about concerns coming through their neighborhood and so five or six years later you know not one spike has been put into the ground yet meanwhile these private companies are coming in and somehow getting around a lot of this and putting in i mean virgin has already opened a uh, higher speed rail it's not maglev but it's high speed rail down in florida and they're working on that same kind of train between just outside of Los Angeles to Las Vegas, uh, this high-speed rail, a good friend of mine, uh, Tina Quigley, was helping them up until just recently uh, do that. She used to be the head of the RTC in Vegas. But so it's, it's actually happening here, these higher-speed rail services. But my point is it's being done by the private sector, more like the way it's run there in the United Kingdom, where the private sector kind of is, um, is out front when it comes to public transport outside of London and the rest of the country. Yeah, it is. Um, the Cornwall have just started. A, well, they're starting it next week. The whole they're, they're basically copying Transport for London, having council-run bus routes run by separate companies. Oh yes, them. right. Yes, I heard that. Uh, you, that there was a law passed that allowed that to happen, and so they're the first ones, huh? Apparently, they're they're going to experimenting with tap-on, tap-off buses as well. They've got all the yes. readers put into the buses, but they're not working yet. Right. Well, I've got friends there that work for uh, my company, Trapeze, is a big software company. We're one of the big, biggest software companies, if not the biggest one in the world, that provides all the behind-the-scenes software, the back-office software that runs public transit systems. So it's the CAD AVL, the Computer Aided Dispatch AVL systems that run the bus service uh, all over 
United Kingdom systems use our software, uh, and as well in Europe and in Australia and Asia, and of course here in North America, we're the biggest too. And uh, I'm vice president of the company, and so we've got um, a, a branch of the company though in the United Kingdom, and they've been wanting me to come over and meet with the Irish national government as well because they're also interested in kind of pursuing this franchising, um, what what they're, what's called there, I guess, franchising opportunities, like they do in London, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so I'm, I'm hoping that once the COVID-19 uh, pandemic passes, I'll be able to get back over there to the United Kingdom and meet with some folks and talk about some of the best practices here in the United States. I'm uh, one of the considered one of the leaders of this. I've worked for a lot of the major companies in the United States that actually run those contracting uh, franchise systems and also have been uh, you know, running governments. I was a county manager for two counties uh, here in America and also oversaw the 11th largest transit system and some swallow ones where we were contracting out to others. So I've kind of been in all three uh, worlds. I've been in the government that's been outsourcing them. I've been working for the companies that actually are the franchise companies and then working for transit agencies to contract out to them. So kind of have a 360 view of it. And so I hope to be able to be there in the UK sometime later this year where I can talk to some folks about and, and maybe give some seminars on best practices. Maybe in the meantime, we'll just do a webinar. That's what's happening now. I don't know if yeah. it's happening there in the UK, but all of our meetings now are like on Zoom or Skype. one of these, uh, so, yeah, Skype, yeah, where we can, you know, see each other, uh, which is a best practice now. People are saying, you know, you shouldn't just do it like on the phone, but you want to be able to see people because, you know, as humans, we are, we, we want to see other people. And a lot of our communication isn't just verbal, right? It's visual. I mean, mm. some studies have shown that it's 70% visual, that, you know, the body language and all that is 70% of communication. And so, I think it's important for everyone to realize that during this time where we are doing more of it telephonically, we should go ahead and dress, you know, put your shirt on <laughs> and, uh, you know, put on a dress shirt and sit in front of the camera and uh, turn it on and so you can see each other and back up a little bit from the camera so it's not just your face. Show kind of your upper body so you can see your arm or your movement. Seriously, it really will help us to have better communication during this time where we have to practice social distancing. Oh yeah, I'm a bit of an introvert, so I'm used to social distancing. <laughs> <laughs> it's no, it's nothing new to you, huh? No, it's a blessing. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, listen, Alex, it's been great talking to you today, and um, uh, I hope that uh, we can continue our conversation as we go out. Uh, and I encourage people to take a look at the book. It's online, The Future of Public Transportation. It's me and 40 of the world's leading transportation experts writing about what's coming in this decade. Also, um, you're listening to Alex's great podcast here, and that's wonderful. But I encourage you to also take a listen to my uh, main podcast, which is Transit Unplugged. It's available all around the world. It's the number one public transportation podcast in the world where we interview CEOs of transit systems. There's a fresh episode every two weeks, so you can uh, subscribe to it, and it'll get emailed to you. One email is all you get. You don't get bombarded with emails, and it just lets you know, hey, this is where you click to get the show. Um, or... You can also listen to my new podcast, which is will probably only run during this COVID-19 scare. It's a daily podcast, and it's giving you the headlines from around the world of how public transportation is handling and responding to the COVID-19 crisis. And that's called Comfort's Corner, my last name, Comfort's Corner. Uh, and so lots of opportunities to connect, or you can go to my website, which is futureofpublictransportation.com. Uh, www.futurepublictransportation.com. There we've got blog posts from some of the authors in our book, the, the contributors to the book. We've also got um, you know, the opportunity if somebody wants to get an autographed copy of the book or uh, lots of other information is there as well. I was planning 
to do a worldwide book tour, Alex, and I had locations scheduled all over the world. I had going to conferences, UITP conference in Dubai, and I was going to be there in May in the United Kingdom um, and uh, a few other places. But of course, it's all on hold now because uh, we just we can't go out and do these events. So, but hopefully, uh, if you uh, once we get past this, we'll be able to get back into that, and all the information will be available on the website. I also want to encourage people to follow me on LinkedIn. I put something up every day on LinkedIn, uh, usually about public transportation or leadership. And um, so just find me, Paul Comfort, on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter, at Comfort Paul. And uh, just one last thing I wanted to mention, uh, folks might be interested to know that I have another book out called Full Throttle, Living Life to the Max with No Regrets. It's my first book, and it basically tells the story of me and 10 CEOs and how we got to become CEOs in our career and some of the best practices of CEOs, how to basically become a better leader and how to manage your career toward excellence, toward moving up the ladder. It's called Full Throttle, and that's available also on Amazon. Thanks so much for having me today as a guest on your show. You're really appreciate welcome. it, Alex. Yeah. And that's all we have time for on this episode of National Transport Podcast. And as always, you can like us on Facebook at National Transport Podcast. You can visit our website at bit.ly forward slash NATTP. Or you can email the show at nationaltransportpodcast at gmail.com. And thanks again for Paul Comfort for joining us on the show. I'll see you all next time.